Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus and I talk about comics. Or so you would think if you if you were to just check the records and look at everything that I've ever released, I'm tempted to say that it's got to be upwards of like 80-90% of the stuff that I've ever released has been about comics. But what I'm supposed to tell you is that I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. So, for that reason, and I guess somewhat by popular demand, I'm going to shift gears a little bit today, and instead of talking about comics, as seems to be my calling card, I'm going to be talking about a movie. But I'm going to circle back to what that movie is in just a moment. For right now, though, what I want to do is just kind of introduce the general subject by way of saying that this came about kind of, sort of, by popular demand, and, you know, I'm not exactly, I don't think I'm extremely well known for capitulating to my viewers, or my listeners, I should say, because that is sometimes the way that I kind of think of it, you know, I don't want to have a show that's, like, dominated, I guess, too much by by my listeners, you know, I do kind of want to go where where I want to go, but today's subject, it just seemed like it was too good an opportunity, but as I say, I'll circle back to that momentarily. Before getting into what I'm going to get into today, I have quite the cavalcade, the all-star podcasting guest star people joining me today. I'm actually kind of running out of superlatives here. Basically, I've got some friends who, in one case, accepted my inv- my invitation to join in, and in another case, kind of elbowed their way in, but I'll come to that, I guess, when I come to that. First up... I welcome back to this show for the first time in, I think, a pretty freaking long time, actually, now that I think about it, but for the first time in a really long time, however long it's been, John M. Wilson. How are you, sir? Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. I did not elbow my way in. I jabbed my entire massive bulk into this thing. So, <laughs> you know, it's um, it's it's something I've been wanting to do for a while, and I'm really, really excited to sit down with you and have this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, happy to do it. And, you know, there was no way I was going to leave you out just because of the fact, number one, I mean, this is kind of a sort of a sequel in a weird, stupid way, I guess, to our Man of Steel trilogy of episodes that we did. But number two, this actually kind of came about on your Facebook, as I recall. The way it goes in my in my memory, and please do correct me if I'm wrong because I'm old and we forget stuff. But somebody on your Facebook made this recommendation to you, and you tagged me in that in that comment discussion that, that ensued, and one thing led to another, and now here we are, recording bright and early on a Saturday morning. So, is that yeah, about basically it? Or? Yeah, and, and, and yeah, that's basically it. It's something I've thought about that I wonder if, I wonder if Magnus is going to do this. I wonder if he's going to do this. We, we could totally sit down. I don't feel like we gave this movie its full due whenever we did our like hot take episode mm-hmm. right. back when it came out. Um, and how can you when you've seen a movie once and you're just sitting down for your first impressions? It, stuff takes time to percolate. And speaking of percolating, there's been a lot of discussion about this movie, which I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. There has been a ton of discussion about this movie, not all of which has been positive, but one of the, I guess, the most notable, most prolific, most respected, and let's just face it, one of the friendliest and most well-liked uh, 
commenters, podcasters, YouTubers, really a, a, a woman of, of many hats, uh, someone has actually been out there talking up this movie in a way that honestly kind of, it, it intimidates even me a little bit. And I'd like to think, you know, I'm kind of the godfather of overanalyzing stuff. Man, I can't even hold a candle to this other guest. And so I welcome back to this show, because this is not her first rodeo, I welcome back to the show for the first time since the last time, Rebecca Johnson. Hello, and how are you? Hey, thanks for having me back. I, I take all of the things that you just said as huge compliments, so I really appreciate you saying that. I, I think that there's a lot to discuss about Batman v Superman, and I'm glad to be a part of this conversation and to get to talk with both of you. Well, one of the... I think I was probably going to have you on, no matter what, but one of the really decisive factors in all of this, just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, because, you know, Rebecca, I think you probably know this story, but maybe other people don't. I, I'm i a member of a um, certain Batman movie forum out there, and it's actually a pretty decent forum, except for, you know, I guess no forum is ever perfect, but this message board is actually pretty good. And... This is a message board that I should say is extremely, extremely into the DCEU Batman. They're extremely into Zack Snyder. They like Ben Affleck's Batman. They like where this character is going in live action. And the Nolanverse, whether anybody loves it or, hate, or, or hates it, kind of left this particular message board a little bit cold. I think that would be a fair assessment, right? And so one day, signed into the forum just to kind of see what's going on. And somebody had, in my mind, again, Rebecca, I could be misremembering this, so if I'm wrong on something, just please feel free to correct me. Somebody started a brand new thread for this, <laughs> okay? This is how much you impressed them. They started a brand new thread uh, dedicated to your YouTube channel where you went through A to Z. The part that really stood out, I think you actually did a couple of videos, but the one that really stood out was the one where you talked at at considerable length, and I would I would add considerable insight about the Amy Adams depiction and portrayal of Lois Lane. And, you know, I mean, it's one thing for, you know, podcasters and people who are kind of in the club, you know, whenever you have their admiration. Well, that's great, but that's one thing. But you, my friend, have mainstream appeal, it seems, because everybody in that and that thread was instantly converted uh, converted into a little bit of a Rebecca Johnson fan fanboy. So I am re I am really surprised by that. I had no idea that that happened. So I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I I have a few videos. I have two videos left in me to make, um, but those those videos that I already have on my YouTube channel are are just things that I wanted to get out there because I love Batman v Superman so much, and there's so much negativity on the internet. I wanted to put out some positivity and put out some actual productive discussion about the movie and about the characters because I felt like that was missing on the internet. So I'm really glad that somebody got something out of it and enjoyed the movie. Uh, well, the the movie and my YouTube videos because I tr I try to make them in a way that is watchable and uh, gives as much information as possible. So I really appreciate you sharing with, uh, sharing that information with me because I had no idea. Oh well, happy to do it. So anyway, so that's basically everybody's 
uh, resume, I suppose, with with this film, uh, or at least as far as my guests are concerned. Um, to get into, I guess, the nitty gritty with myself, this is a movie that I dare not exaggerate in saying I've been dreaming of a movie, like either this movie or something like it, Superman finally meeting Batman in live action. And I've been dreaming about that for very close to 30 years by the time this movie came out, you know? I grew up hardcore Superman fan. I mean, Superman's my guy. He was even back then, and certainly he is now. And when I started developing a little bit of a Batman fandom, I mean, there's something in the child imagination, at least in our generation, that you you can't help but think, you know, well, what would a movie be like with this? Or what would a movie be like with that? You know, and it it's almost a cliche, I guess, but... You know, this is something that I at least had been daydreaming about for a really long time. So I guess as far as not necessarily like specifically Batman v Superman, but in general, the idea of Superman meeting Batman in live action in some kind of capacity or another. Like, John, where's your starting point with that? Okay, so... Probably it was after the first um, Tim Burton Batman film because mm-hmm. that's whenever – that was the first superhero film I saw in theaters. And my comic collecting started you know, in the months following that. I was aware of the Superman films. I had probably seen them, but I wasn't like into it. Right. But you know, in 1989, Superman 4 was not that far in the rearview mirror. And the idea of those two universes coming together um, was was a dream, I think, that millions of us had. Um, Impossible, though, when you think about it. But yeah, it was a dream, but it was like out of reach just for legal reasons. It could and not the be more. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that when I was, the legal reasons didn't even occur to me when I was a kid. It's just like, you know, we had these awesome Superman films, this new awesome Batman film, and got to get them together because everyone knows Superman and Batman. Uh, and, you know, it's just one of those things that as time went by and Christopher Reeve got more and more in the past and the Batman films took some really interesting turns, um, it was <laughs> – it, it seemed to be less and less likely. So – then it became like, what was the I Am Legend that has Superman, Batman, Marquee on the wall of the building? So it became this like fantasy future that all of us nerds had. It's like one day there's going to be a Superman, Batman film. It's going to happen, you know? Um, see, I was, I, actually, I was actually more like afraid of that because you know what else you see a lot in movies? Flying cars. So I I thought, wow, so is Batman V... So is any kind of like Superman, Batman team-up movie, is this like the flying car now, this thing that we can all dream about but you're never going to get? Yeah, there's that side of it too, yeah. So when it was finally coming down the pike, um, when they announced... I I remember, I can still picture and hear portions of in my mind the the Comic-Con panel where they announced what the nature of the Man of Steel sequel was going to be. Mm-hmm. And they shut off the lights and you hear Kevin Conroy's voice, I think, saying lines from Batman the Dark Knight. And oh, it's, it's, up... uh, Harry, it's Harry Lennox. Yeah. Is it? Right. Okay. Yeah, General they... Swanwick. All right, cool. And they put up the logo of the two emblems overlaid and everyone just, you know, lost their stuff over all that. That was, you know... 
that was fantastic. And ever since then, I've been excited for the second Man of Steel movie to have Batman in it. And there was all the gyrations over, is it a Batman movie or a Superman movie or a Justice League movie because the title is so complex? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is a Superman movie. It has Batman in it, and it teases the Justice League. That's what the title is saying. It's a Superman movie with Batman and Justice League. Right. So, Rebecca, how about you? Like, uh, like, was this something that you daydreamed about, or was this more of just like an interesting sort of what if? I well, when I grew up, I grew up with uh, I think having knowledge of like Supergirl the movie and the Christopher Reeve movies. I think, but I I don't remember the exact time I first saw them. But when I was a kid, I just I think I'd seen them on TV, and so that's kind of how I saw them. And of course, like John mentioned, when 1989 came around and Bat, uh, Tim Burton's Batman came out in theaters, I was like in third grade. I begged my parents to take me, um, and so that's kind of where my Batman fandom started was when I was about nine years old. And I just kind of saw them as Superman movies and Batman movies. And it wasn't until my like mid twenties that I got really big into comics. And I never, I guess it wasn't until like Superman returns and uh, like the dark Knight trilogy where that, I kind of started hearing talking, uh, you know, people, fans, uh, you know, movie people talking about what if this happened, what if we got these two characters involved and together in a film? Like I never, I guess I never really thought about putting them together in a movie until then, I guess it was not something on my radar, but now it just, it, it makes perfect sense because if, uh, if you want to tell those kinds of stories like they do in the comics, you, you have to put them together. So I'm, I'm just really glad it, it ended up happening, even though I wasn't something I grew up and, uh, needed when I was a kid. All right. Awesome. Fair enough. All right. Well, the, the listeners I think are, are pretty well familiar, Rebecca, I think with what I first thought of this movie and what John first thought of it, but, you know, just try to imagine, you know, I guess what you were thinking, you know, you're, you're come, you've bought your ticket, you've gone in, you've seen the movie, you're coming out the doors. What are your first thoughts about this movie? And then after this, I think we can get into like the nitty gritty of, you know, who did what to whom, where, why, and how, and all that fun (laughs) stuff. I went to go see it for the first time at the fan screening, uh, which I think happened a couple of days before the official release of the movie. So we got to see it before the movie reviews came out uh, from like, you know, Rotten Tomatoes and things like that. Um, We saw it before everybody got to see it at the, you know, Thursday midnight screening. So this was like several days before most of the world had seen the movie. And when I came out of that theater, I was so pumped. I loved it so much. I came home and I was, I remember like I had put on one of my favorite songs and I was like dancing around to it. Cause I just had such a good time when I came out of that theater because I remember thinking, and I still think this to this day is that that's the movie I always wanted to see. Hmm. I fell, I fell in love with comic books because of the death of Superman storyline. That hmm. was the com- That was the comic that made me fall in love with the medium of, of comic books and the storytelling that could come out of comic books. Because when I read the death of Superman, there is a set of panels when Lex Luthor goes to see Superman's coffin and he slams his fist down onto the coffin. And then it kind of cuts to uh, someone trying to revive Jonathan Kent. And that was the moment in comic book reading when I realized, Oh, 
this is sort of like a storyboard. This is how this is how they are telling this story through these visuals. Like it wasn't just like pretty pictures to go along with the words. It was a way to tell it tell the story through frames and visual storytelling. And that just sparked my imagination. I had known about comics and, and things like that, but I fell in love with superheroes because of the movies and the cinematic language. And so the death of Superman just really opened my eyes to how comic books could tell stories. Hmm. So I have always wanted to see someone do a proper death of Superman story just because I loved that one so much. And when I walked out of the theater, I was like, that's the death of Superman. That is what I'd I had always wanted to see. Uh, you know, I know this sounds really uh, sick and twisted, but you know, the shot of, you know, the iconic shot of Lois Lane holding Superman's dead body. I'd always kind of wanted to see that because it's such an iconic image and to see it with my favorite actress uh, playing my favorite version of the character. I really was jazzed about that. And I thought it was a really good movie. I came out thinking, well, the, you know, to be fair, like some of the uh, sequencing of the cuts and the edits was probably not the best. Of course, you find out later they had to cut out like 30 minutes in the movie. So that makes a lot more sense. But I just remember thinking, this is going to be great. I think people are going to like this. It was a good movie. And then the reviews started coming out. And I was like, yeah. what movie did y'all see? Because that's not the movie I saw. So I, I was really shocked, honestly, when the negative critiques came out of it because as a movie fan as someone who likes to review movies and tv shows i was really surprised by how other reviewers handled it because it was not it was not very uh well thought out in terms of critiques so um i i just i loved it from the get-go and it only uh, my love for it only got uh it only grew after each viewing but after that first one i, I was just i was so jazzed awesome all right well <sighs> I, you know, I got to tell you, like, as far as first impressions go, I think that would actually be a very, very hard one to top, to tell you the truth. So uh, to get into the the actual the actual movie, though, uh, basically what we've got here, the movie starts off with. This was a little bit of a groaner whenever I saw the movie in theaters on opening day. Batman's origin story, and I will never forget. There was some, there was some guy that was sitting in front of me, uh, a couple of rows ahead, who, when he saw the Waynes walking down the street past the Mark of Zorro poster, he said, "Ugh, we know this story." And considering how, as much as I like uh, Tim Burton's Batman movie. I mean, that's, like the rest of you, that was like my real gateway into Batman. As much as I like that movie, that's really not the way the Wayne murders are supposed to play out. Or you can move forward to uh, Batman Begins, right? Some people like that movie, some people don't. That's really not the way the Wayne murders are supposed to play out. And... You, Basically, every single major live-action depiction of the Wayne murders that I, that I at least know about, they've all got one major flaw. Typically, it's going to be that the Wayne murders have some kind of deeper objective meaning personal to Bruce Wayne beyond the fact that, hey, he just lost his frickin' parents, all right? There, it's, it could be that you know, his greatest enemy, the guy who's going to become his greatest enemy, that's the guy that killed his parents. And so there's this weird kind of reversal going on there. Or 
or, 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 or whatever the case may be, when, oddly enough, Zack Snyder is the only person in cinema so far who has really gotten what the Wayne murders are all about. There is no meaning to it. You know, this was a random street crime. The Waynes were in the wrong place at the wrong time. There isn't a deeper meaning to it. There's not uh, some kind of criminal conspiracy that's going on here. It's 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 just wrong place, wrong time. It it really is that simple. And it it's kind of surprising that almost nobody is giving Snyder credit for that. I mean, don't you, uh, don't, don't you guys think? I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's so faithful to uh, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Like if you look at the panels in that book, mm-hmm. um, Snyder, he, he that, that was his inspiration was The Dark Knight Returns. And he does a lot of things in that sequence that have never we've never seen. We've never seen uh, in a cinematic or TV version of that that's part of Batman's origin. We've never seen Martha go after the gun. We've never seen them. Um, you know, I, I just kind of feel like they, they're so happy in that moment. And that's what make, makes that so tragic. And uh, we've never seen that, you know, the focus of the the name of Martha. I know people poo-poo on that, but that's a really emotional thing that comes back later in the movie. And It's I, the I ever, first line of dialogue of the film. Yes. Other than Bruce's narration, the very first line of dialogue in this film is Martha. Yeah, and I, I think that's so incredibly beautiful and and poignant and and important to the story and i remember i had sat down a friend of mine who came to visit uh i I think for dragon con or or something else i I forget when exactly she came but i i had taught her how to use a you know use a camera i taught her how to compose a shot because she needed to help me (laughs) with a a project that i was working on and I, i taught her the basics of how to compose a shot and how to make something look nice on a camera and i showed her the the opening sequence of Batman v Superman with the Waynes being murdered. Mm -hmm. And I didn't say a word to her. And she turned to me and she goes, that is gorgeous. And I just, I I felt so proud because I was like, I taught her how to use a camera. She's very good at using a camera now. And for her to say that, it just emphasized to me that people don't give them enough credit, Zack Snyder, Larry Fong, for making a beautiful movie and for using the camera in the ways that it should. And that sequence, that sequence of the Waynes getting murdered is one of the greatest things I've seen in a movie, period, full stop. And uh, I, I think it's really cynical, and I, I I don't understand it when people groan about, oh, we're having to see this again. Well, you're not seeing this just again. This is a different interpretation. It's a different style. It's a different way of showing this, and it's a different story. So I I just I think that's really cynical for someone to say, and I, I happen to think it's it's very unique in the way it's presented. You know, back when um, The Amazing Spider-Man was coming out and back when Man of Steel was coming out and we got... I knew it. I freaking... I knew this was going to happen. One of us was going to mention The Amazing Spider-Man. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) We got retellings of origin stories that, let's face it, are built into American DNA at this point. We know as a culture, we know Spider-Man's story. We know Superman's story. I'm sure there's... You know, there are millions of people who don't, but, you know, they should. So um, having it retold in a film, I think it is important to do it in a way that is fresh and to do it in a way that ties into the story. 
And both in the case of The Amazing Spider-Man and Man of Steel, and again here with Batman v Superman, we get a telling of the origin that includes elements that are important to the story. Um, this, like, 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 you know, I said earlier, the Martha bit, the first line of dialogue, you know, the, the notion that is recurrent through this film that Bruce is haunted by his parents, especially by his mother's death, is is a crucial element of the story here. You don't understand what's going on if you don't understand that. Um, Agreed. And I, I had a few notes about about this scene, if, if I can go through them a little bit. Um, well, actually, before you do, I just want to jump in on something while it's still kind of fresh in my mind. And it, and it won't take but just a sec. Um, uh, Rebecca, you mentioned uh, Larry Fong just a second ago, the cinematographer. And yes. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And, you know, one of the things that I actually kind of enjoy about Batman v Superman is that this is a little bit more of a stereotypical Zack Snyder type of movie. I love Man of Steel, but that doesn't really look as much like a Zack Snyder film in terms of uh, the cinematography and camera movements and all of that fun stuff. And I don't think it's necessarily an accident that it that Larry Fong was not the cinematographer for that movie. Whereas he's back here, and so this looks... It, it has those those kind of lingering uh, shots of, of characters just not doing anything, but it's still expressing something. They're walking down a street happily, or they're sitting in their apartment drink, drinking wine and try to forget about the fact they just watched people get shot to death, you know, or, or, or whatever it is that's going on. And you, you get little moments like that, or yes, the slow motion and, and, you know, things like that. And, this just looks more cinematic to me. And this is actually, you know, the comparisons were kind of inevitable, I think, with Civil War. In as much as you've got two heroes who are in basically major conflict with one another that eventually it boils over into actual combat. All of this is being done at the behest of the villain. So I can see where the comparisons are kind of coming from here. But I always thought Civil War... And I'm not saying this to insult anybody or be snarky or sarcastic or anything like that. I'm just saying it because I really do believe this is true. Civil War, to me, it looks like it was shot on an iPhone in order to be watched on an iPhone. Whereas Batman v Superman, this looks very, this looks more cinematic to me. And I appreciate that. So anyway, uh, John, back to you. Um. Yeah, I'm sure it's not going to be the last Civil War comparison today. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I was I was trying to figure out why um, Bruce's narration opens this film and what it is that he's trying to say, because he basically says some poetry there. Um, there was once a time, you know, diamond absolutes, um, things were good or whatever, and then he says... Um, what falls is fallen. And it's a good line. It is a good line. And I was trying to figure out whom he was talking about there. Like who has fallen or who fell and is fallen. And the more I thought about it, I realized, I, I think that it was both himself and the way he sees Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, when he's talking about how things were pure and things were good, and yes, of course, before his parents, but also 
when he became Batman mm-hmm. and he had Robin, there were good things going on in his life. He was taking out bad guys. He was doing something good. And since then, he has fallen. Mm-hmm. He's not okay anymore, which is also a very important aspect of the film that if you don't understand that aspect of Batman, you don't know what's going on. The Batman in this film is not okay. Um, but also the way he sees Superman. Um, Superman has come to this earth. Superman is fallen. Superman has killed all these people in Metropolis the way he sees it. And so there's... there's um, a damned aspect to that as well. Um, and then whenever he is being surrounded by the bats um, and he rises up for one second, there's, I was like, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> what, 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 what is, what are we doing here? But you realize pretty quickly it's a dream. And he uh, says that they, the bats took him into the light and it was a beautiful lie. And that reiterates the idea that being Batman was a good thing for him for a while. Mm-hmm. And it no longer is. I, I like that point. And I, I just kind of now thought about how when you were talking, John, uh, you were sort of describing how a Batman, when he goes into the light and he becomes Batman, that's his way of dealing with his parents' murder. That's his way of overcoming uh, what you know the tra- tra- trauma and the traumatic elements of that in his life, but the movie goes on to show that even though he is Batman, he is still fallen, and it's it's only until the it it takes that Martha moment for him to finally get over that hurdle. It's not it's not really Batman that does it for him. It's the connection he has with Superman and being just Bruce Wayne that that is what helps him to get over that. And I. I think what's so great about uh, we were talking about Larry Fong and the cinematography, like they have that whole speech about what what falls is fallen, and you actually see little Bruce <laughs> fall into the hole. So they make it very clear that he is, you know, he's the fallen man in the story. And I I I, I like to talk about it in terms of you know spiritual aspects that you know they have a lot of God versus man in the movie, and and Bruce is that fallen man to Superman's God. And so I I really I think that's a, a beautiful way of telling a Batman story. <clears throat> Well, I, you know, I, I, I like that myself. I guess I was coming at that speech from the standpoint, like having seen the movie a couple of times, I started thinking, well, maybe the, I, I kind of like the idea of getting a flash back visually at the same time that we're getting a flash forward with audio. So it's sort of like Batman after the movie, he's learned all of his different lessons and he realizes now where it was that he went wrong thinking back on things and I kind of like the idea of the I I don't really like using the word juxtapose because I think it sounds like pretentious douchebaggery but it is kind of an interesting (laughs) juxtaposition in that you have you know this kind of jaded and cynical but maybe less jaded and cynical now Bruce you know that's maybe that's the angle that we're supposed to start from and that's only because of how the movie ends. And I thought, well, what if it ends, it begins kind of where it ends at the same time, you know, with a funeral with Bruce, basically uh, being, I guess the voice of wisdom in the room. And I kind of liked that idea of it. So that's really the only way, that's the only reason I thought of it like that. So that's a cool um, thought. 
Thank, thank you. I'm, I'm full of cool. Th- I'm full of lots of things, actually. Just ask my girlfriend. Cool, cool thoughts, too. Yes. But uh, getting into a little bit further ahead in the movie, the that this whole bit with the Wayne murders and falling into bat caves and all that fun stuff, that's more of like a prologue. The movie really starts, though, with uh, yet another flashback, although not as far back in the past. And there's actually some really, I, I really like the, I guess the the title font or this title card that they're using on to kind of introduce the the flashback to the Metropolis fight with Zod. It basically is just this all white title card with black text saying Metropolis. Mankind is introduced to the Superman, mm-hmm. and it has this kind of ominous tone to it. I thought. And considering this is being this is a flashback being told from Bruce's point of view, this is not necessarily a positive development. And before we go any further, I need to tell our listeners very late in the game, we're going to be talking about the ultimate edition of this movie. You know, so if you're if you've been thinking about the theatrical cut of this movie, banish that from your mind because that's not what we're dealing with. Anyway, so like I, I said, the confession con- of egg. Oh, go right ahead. It was about 10 minutes into the film before I realized I wasn't watching the Ultimate Edition. So any differences in just this Metropolis portion, mm-hmm. um, I may have forgotten. But um, I did check to the Ultimate from Africa onward. Oh, okay. Well, that's, um, that, that, that's all right. But, you know, what we see here in, the, in this little uh, recap of the Metropolis sequence, number one, it just reminds you of what happened. You know, for those of you who hadn't seen man of steel in a while but it also shows you what happens kind of fresh from bruce's perspective you know and i guess rebecca i i kind of want to direct this at you is this supposed to be an answer to the critics of man of steel who apparently don't seem to mind all the widespread destruction and chaos and devastation in avengers suddenly finding religion about that same thing in man of steel you know uh, all of the casualties and collapsed buildings and all this stuff, is this basically intended to be directed at them, do you think? <laughs> that's such a, that's my, one of my favorite things in the world. <laughs> like, nobody cares that the Incredible Hulk is running through an office full of people and breaking glass. But we're, we're going to get upset about the end of Man of Steel. Um, but I, I think it's a, a direct response to what happened at man, uh, at the end of man of steel, because I remember people saying, well, why wasn't anybody on the ground helping out? Why, why was nobody, um, doing that? And why didn't Superman do anything? Well, you can clearly see that Superman had his hands full and, uh, it was nice to see that somebody was on the ground doing things in addition to Perry and Jenny and Steve, there were, there were other people like Bruce Wayne out there helping people. And the only difference, uh, John, I think in this section of the movie in the ultimate edition is that we get to see Bruce, uh, helping a little girl get into the line with the, the teacher and the other students. So I think that's the, if I remember correctly, that's the only major difference in the ultimate edition is that you get to see him helping another little girl. I remember that. Yeah. We see, we see him save one. But yeah. I don't think we see him like give hand her off to anybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole like teacher in a line of students, and one of them kind of gets off <laughs> off track, and so he just picks her up and puts her back in with the other students. Um, but yeah, it's it's a way to see 
the perspective on the ground and seeing how people reacted to what was happening. Uh, and I really like that. And especially because, again, the, the God, of, uh, God versus man theme in the story, this is a great way to set that up because you have Bruce Wayne on the ground, who is the man of the story. And he's looking up and seeing these two, you know, gods, if you want to call them that, fighting in these buildings. And uh, I, I think it's a really smart way to go about it. It sets up why Bruce is ticked. It sets up why Batman would have a problem with Superman. And it's a good way to, to start going into the story. I agree. And I like the fact that, you know, this also kind of serves as a little bit of a mission statement that this is there was uh, fans complain. It's just it's it's what it's what they do. And so I guess it's one of those things that when you become aware of it, you know, I at least try to move away from it myself. But nevertheless, fans did complain that uh, instead of doing a Man of Steel sequel, we're basically going to get a Batman movie co-starring Superman. And this little opening sequence here with Bruce, he's on the phone driving through Metropolis as it's getting wrecked. And it's very clear that this is, a, it's a continuation of Man of Steel. It's it's a sequel to Man of Steel. It's a sequel that, incru that includes Batman, like John, you said a second ago. But this <laughs> is still a sequel. And that's that's the point that, I don't know if necessarily Snyder intended to set out to make, because I seriously doubt he's cruising Facebook and he's worrying about what what you know people are saying about the direction his movies are going in. At least I hope he doesn't. I mean, I hope he doesn't read the stuff that people say about him because, my God, man. But mm. uh, you know, it, it is nevertheless it, kind of an interesting way to you know undercut a lot of people's uh, uh, concerns <laughs> and gripes and criticisms. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Is anyone else really tired of hearing people say they're still waiting for a Man of Steel 2? I mean, we got Man of Steel 2. That's what this yeah. movie is. This is Man of Steel 2. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I thought it was a genius way to connect the films. Um, there, There's a lot of timing in the editing that matches up. We've all seen the YouTube videos that put this movie and Man of Steel side by side. Yeah. And you're getting the same – Bruce is noticing the exact same – like heat vision attacks at the same angles as they were done in Man of Steel. There's so much attention to detail linking these scenes. And, and you mentioned, um, Rebecca, you know, that there are other people on the ground helping people out. And I'm, and I'm like, couldn't people watching Man of Steel have assumed that was probably happening? Right. We're focusing on the Superman Zod fight of the story, but can't we assume that there are other people who are, you know, that the emergency services are in there doing emergency servicey things. <laughs> and, you know, Superman has his hands full in that, in that fight. He cannot get away. Uh, and he wouldn't want to get away because there's a guy trying to destroy his planet. Um, I was watching this and, uh, I was watching this with my daughter and, uh, Lily was amused that Bruce is talking to Jack and Jack has not left the building yet. Yeah. And, uh, I remember that Perry White also took a really long time to get out of the building. It just happened to work out better for him than it did for for the people at Wayne Enterprises. Well, um, I've always I've always wondered if that was a 9/11 thing because on 9/11 the people in the trade towers were told not to leave the buildings. They were told not to 
exit the buildings. They were told to go back up. So I, I don't know. That's kind of how I saw it is that it was sort of since they were going with a lot of 9-11 imagery, it could have been a thing like that. Um, but it looked like Jack had gotten all of his people out. He was just kind of there by himself. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, well, what yeah, I got could... was that he he the office had been his floor, at least, had been mostly empty. He was just basically making the rounds. He is the boss. He is kind of the authority figure. So he wanted to make sure all the people were out before he left himself. Now, I think that kind of speaks to a certain kind of nobility. You know, I'd like to believe that I'd be that noble. But I, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I mean, you know, at at work, my second week at my new job uh, a couple of months ago, um, there was like a legit fire, like a fire fire uh, at, at the uh, building next door that is adjacent to ours, physically touches it. And so we had to get evacuated too. And so, you know, I mean, it's like in my head, I'm thinking, okay, walk slowly, walk slowly. I have to put on a brave face. I do have to work with these people. But, you know, your heart is pumping. Man, get out of here. Get out of here. You got to go. You got to go. This, you, you never know. What what if, you know, what if that, what if, uh, I don't know, fucking Al-Qaeda, they, they attacked the, the building next door to you and, and it's the restaurant and, and this is, you know, that that's what they did. They, you know, Al-Qaeda, they, they attacked the restaurant next door to you. You got to get out, you know, and. It makes no sense, but I, looking back at it, but I'm, you know, in the moment, right? It, it, you're, you've got to be a little bit panicked, you know. And yeah. he sees like heat vision flying all around his office, and he, he basically, uh, well, and this actually, you know, this is actually sort of interesting. He he says a prayer, and it, this is not the first time that we see people making some kind of religious. Uh, observance, you know, we see it again later on when Major Ferris makes the sign of the cross just before they nuke Superman, and it it it, it comes up a bit in this movie, you know, not just in the text, you know, people uh, referring to Superman as in in some sense or another God, or uh, even in like I guess like meta text where like you were saying, Rebecca, we have all of this God versus man thing. You know, it's actually sometimes very literal, you know. So, I mean, religion is kind of inseparable from this movie when you get down to brass tacks, I suppose. I, I like that they do show casual references to the people being religious in the film. I, I wouldn't have minded if we had seen other examples of that than just Christianity. Um, but I, I like that, you know, it's a part of life, it's a part of culture, and it's a part of the people's existence in this in this story. And I personally think it's really refreshing that they showed examples of someone of faith doing that because I I don't see that a lot. I'm a Christian and I don't see that a lot in movies at all. And if the, if it is in a movie, it's being made fun of. So I really appreciated that it was taken seriously and, and used as a, a very genuine thing that somebody did. So I, I, for one, appreciated it. Agreed. I remember going into this film, like you were saying earlier, uh, Magnus, that people were just saying it was going to be a Batman movie with Superman and, you know, and I think that was fueled a little bit by, I remember there being some sort of comment in an interview or, or statement made at a panel or something that um, there was going to be a lot of time spent with Batman in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, but like with this scene and in the previous scene with the funeral and, and, and Martha, and everything, everything that Batman does in this movie 
is in relationship to the story surrounding Superman and this, the theme of Batman's opposition to Superman. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even though Batman's in this film a lot, mm-hmm. it is purely at the service of the Superman story. Yes. Agreed. Well, and, you know, speaking of that, you know, up to this point, you know, what we have is, you know, all, we have uh, Zod's, you know, world engine that's uh, beating Metropolis uh, into submission. We have buildings collapsing and ships crashing and all, of, uh, you know, all of that stuff. But there's this very uh, sad moment after Bruce saves that little girl and and he gives her a hug and he just stares with. I can I can only describe this as hatred in his eyes as he sees Superman and Zod fighting each other through the air. And it's on the one hand. Yeah, I mean, that is the picture perfect setup for Batman's entire motivation throughout this movie. You can't ask for anything better than that. But the other thing that I like about it is that what we find out very quickly as the movie unfolds is that this is not a consensus opinion. I mean, his his point of view is just one of many. There are a lot of people out there who regard Superman as a hero. And there are a lot of people out there who... I don't know how literally we're supposed to take this, but they regard him as sort of a god uh, of a sort. And then there are others who just see him as an alien. And there are others who see him as just a regular guy trying to do what he can to help, you know? And the the consensus here seems to be that there is no consensus. You know, no one... Se- <laughs> there, there, don't, there don't seem to be any two matching opinions of who and what Superman is. And is is he a friend or is he a uh, an enemy? Is he just a random schmuck? I mean, you know, it... You know, we, we get Batman's point of view as sort of the foundation for the narrative... But the narrative itself unfolds with different people having different points of view. A good example of which, and maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, but a good example of this is the Daily Planet. The editorial point of view definitely seems to lean pro-Superman. Then you get Senator (laughs) June Finch, who she's not specifically anti-Superman per se, but she simply doesn't like Superman being, I guess, a little bit of a cowboy and doing what he wants to do and going where he wants to go. Her, to kind of, like like we kind of hinted at earlier, to relate this back to a civil war, there needs to be some sort of oversight to this, and that seems to be her point of view. And then you've got Lex Luthor, who regards Superman not as a god, but as uh, but as the devil. And so, you know, what do you do about that, you know? And I, I like the fact that this movie really does indulge the fact that the world is adjusting to the fact that there's an alien, he's here on Earth, we know that he's here, he walks among us, and he does these incredible things, and what are we supposed to think of all of that? And the movie spends a lot of time, and if I may, comes to one hell of a resolution about that, but it spends a lot of time grappling with with that question. I mean, where are you guys on that stuff? My feeling on on the sort of how that developed is that up to the point of the events of this film, public sentiment, or at least the majority voice, was pro-Superman. And it's the Nairomi attacks 
and the the accusations that come out of them that really cause a shift and an increase in skepticism. Because a lot of the conversations we see in this film sound like they're happening for the first time. Mm-hmm. And and I, I feel like and it's almost if I it's almost one of the few flaws I think in the storytelling of this film is I would have liked to have seen more status quo of how the world saw Superman before Lex put his plans into motion. Um, because I, th- I think it's like, um, crap. I had an example I was going to mention about this, but, um, But anyways, regardless of what I was going to compare it to, uh, if, if you have if you have like an establishing shot or an establishing sequence of scenes that helps you understand where things are, and then you bring in the change, mm-hmm. mm. um, as opposed to this story really starts with the change. Because right. after after Metropolis, the first thing we see is finding that rock, and that rock sets everything else in the mo- in the in the movie into motion. Right. Well, yeah, fair enough. I'll I'll ride with that. The the Nairomi uh, attack, though, that does that does kind of raise a, a few eh, uh, interpretive difficulties, I guess. Um, just for fun and games, what I decided to do was measure the distance between. I, I think I think what I did was I just chose some place in. Uh, in uh, uh, Kenya and someplace in just for, you know, I guess just for, for ease of uh, comparison, uh, I think what I chose was Chicago. So basically the distance between Chicago and Kenya, and that works out to 7,986 miles distance between the two. Right. And, Mm -hmm. I kind of wondered how could Superman, even if he heard the gunshot that took out the photographer, whom we'll come back to in just a second, <laughs> even if he heard that gunshot in when it when he was in Metropolis or Chicago, the only way he could possibly get to uh, Kenya or Nairobi in time. To, in time to save Lois is if he's capable of flying Mach 10 or faster. And who who knows? Maybe he can. Maybe maybe in the DCEU, Superman is capable of flying that fast, if not faster. But that's pretty much the distance that he'd have to cover in order in order to to get to Lois on time. So the only other thing that I could think about is that maybe Superman was hiding nearby, far enough away that it's going to take him a couple of minutes to to get to Nairobi, but not so far away that he has to fly freaking Mach 10. So, I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. We don't know where Superman started from. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. It, 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 it's funny that you and I came at that from different points of view because I was at it like, it took him a really long time to get there. Like, he's not flying at comic book super speed, go around the universe and two beats of a, you know, rat's eyelash. That's a new phrase I just made up. Um, <laughs> you know, it took him a while to get there. But yeah, with global distances, it's still going to require a massive amount of speed. 
and depending of course on where he started also depending on um how much time passed between the shooting upstairs and lois being a prisoner downstairs right there might have been more of a time gap there and you know maybe so maybe so but you know it's one of those things honestly i don't think we're supposed to think about it too much but, you know, we're nerds. We overthink things. And it just, <laughs> it, it just kind of made me wonder, you know. So there's no deeper meaning to that. But there there was some amount of consternation online when this movie came out in as much as Zack Snyder killed Jimmy Olsen. And I don't mean like eh, the body fell down into the cavern of doom, but we never really see what happens. No, I mean, guy's just dead, like dead, dead. And... He's not really a photographer for the Daily Planet as such. He's actually a CIA plant who was basically using Lois Lane's cover uh, to get close to... I don't even know who the other guy was. The And whatever happens, happens. He gets a bullet to the head. He's he's gone. And there was a lot of outcry about that. And it, and it kind of surprised me, I guess, because... You know, I don't know very many people that would consider themselves dyed-in-the-wool Jimmy Olsen fans. I mean, is that anybody's real aspiration, <laughs> you know, to be a Jimmy Olsen fan? I mean, is there anybody out there that that's their, their dream ever since they were a kid? Maybe 1955, whenever the Jimmy Olsen comic was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, he was pretty popular back in the day. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's that's 60 years ago, so... Well. Well, he's had a resurgence now with Supergirl, the TV series. So there are probably some some James Olsen fans now. Mm. Okay, well, fair enough. I wouldn't mind being James Olsen. That man's cut. (laughs) Um, But anyways. Kind of an interesting little Smallville callback. Uh, He was played by Michael Cassidy. So he was Grant Gabriel in the sainted seventh season of Smallville. And uh, now he plays Jimmy Olsen, so I guess he just cannot get away from the Daily Planet, it seems. So, so I had go ahead, Rebecca. Oh well, I I was gonna say, um, I did think it was really interesting uh, when you mentioned the the outrage that people had about, oh my gosh, they killed Jimmy Olsen. I was surprised by that too. I was like, since when do y'all care about Jimmy Olsen? Because it's funny because the the Christopher Reeve movies, they didn't really do a whole lot with Jimmy Olsen. Superman Returns, they don't really do a whole lot with Jimmy Olsen. I think Jimmy Olsen, in terms of media, he, he gets a lot of play in Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Mm-hmm. He had he has a little bit of stuff there in Smallville. And, of course, now in Supergirl, even well, even now in Supergirl, I'm still like, hey, can we have more Jimmy Olsen? Uh, so I think, me personally, what they did in Batman v Superman was a lot of good Jimmy Olsen stuff. He has a camera. He takes pictures. He's on the he's out in the field with Lois Lane on a story. He goes with her to interview someone. He sticks up for her and uh, and protects her. And those are all very Jimmy Olsen things. He he's there when a Superman thing happens. So I you know I would rather them use him in a good way instead of sticking him in every movie and not doing anything with him. So I was at least glad that the little bit of Jimmy Olsen that we saw, I recognized Jimmy Olsen in that guy. So that I, that's my feeling on it. Well, yeah, and I'm kind of coming from the same, well, maybe not the same place. Look, my, my God's honest opinion here, and I'm talking about pre-crisis Jimmy, all right? 
My God's honest opinion is that Superman truly is the only thing that's standing between Jimmy Olsen in the Silver Age and a Darwin Award. And that's pretty much what we see in Batman v Superman, where in a fair and just universe, Jimmy Olsen just didn't last that long. You know, if he doesn't have Superman to bail him out, he's history. You know, and so to me, that makes a lot of sense. I've never really, apart from the pre-crisis, I've never really been a big Jimmy guy. And so, you know, it's not like I want to see the guys suffer or anything like that. But okay, fine, we got a little bit of Jimmy and... Maybe even a little bit is too much for some people, but still, we, we got enough, and now we can finally move on. He got his well-deserved Darwin Award. I, I, I can die a happy man now. <laughs> well, and it's not like Zack Snyder was telling a story that was completely unique for Jimmy Olsen. He's been killed in the comics before, so I, I, don't, I don't understand the outrage of it. There, there have been stories. like I think it's even in Injustice. He has a, a similar fate where he's shot and killed, so I, I don't know. Well, I don't he know died why, a really why... bad death and whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, you know, and uh, yeah, no, I so maybe killing Jimmy is just one of those things that stories do. It is. I think um, so. I, I, I was watching this and I had a little bit of a different what if scenario that sort of emerged in my mind. I'm pretty sure this is not to be the case because of the way the movie plays out. But what if, um, what if Jimmy Olsen was – because one of the things I heard a complaint about was that Jimmy Olsen was no longer a reporter. He was now the CIA agent, and um, which I actually thought was kind of a neat nod to all the various and multiple different shenanigans that Jimmy got up to in his series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean the dude did everything. Yeah, he went um, to the moon. I mean, my God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a member of the Legion. He's been an army officer. He's done all this stuff. So it was kind of cool to see him, instead of the photographer who gets to be these other things, his this CIA agent pretend to be a photographer. It was a neat spin. But what if he actually was just a photographer? Um, because whenever the Russian guy goes up to him and grabs his camera – and dismantles it and takes out that tracking signal. The question that popped in my head was, how did he know that was there? Because we all know this entire situation is set up by Lex Luthor. How did Hmm. Lex Luthor's agent know that Jimmy Olsen, A, was going to be there, and B, had a tracking device in his camera? So I thought, what if it was planted? What if the... Um, Russian guy who works for Luthor um, had planted that somehow ahead of time in the camera because Luthor has ways. And so whenever Jimmy got there and the guy walked up to him and took apart his camera and Jimmy Olsen found himself facing the bad end of a gun, he tried to bluff his way out of it because he's Jimmy Olsen and that's what he did for 137 issues or whatever <laughs> long the comic went. Um, and it just didn't go so well for him this time. That's a really good point, John, because that whole sequence is a setup from it's a setup from Lex Luthor. Lex uses that as a way to tarnish Superman's image. So I would totally buy that. Maybe they they were using Jimmy Olsen as a pawn. I totally buy it. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I makes sense. Makes sense. I like that. You know, I, the I guess what I thought was if you're just desperate to have more Jimmy in your life. You could say that he that this guy really was a CIA agent, 
And he was just using the name Jimmy because that's known to be an American photographer. And maybe they'll believe that somebody like that would accompany Lois Lane. And she's never even met Jimmy, so she doesn't know who this guy is. And, you know, it maybe that's, I don't know. I mean, there it just seemed like there were a couple of different ways that they could have that even now, you know, if somebody comes along and says, damn it, I must have Jimmy in my movie, you know, then, hey, just do Smallville. That was Henry, his older brother, you know, I mean, <laughs> do do whatever you want, you know, it'll 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 be OK. Um, but then we get to uh, Superman rescuing Lois. And here again, this caused a huge amount of backlash, you know, not that he rescued her. The way in which he rescued her. The brutality? Yeah. And now, look, my Superman fandom, it is deep. It goes back a long way. But I would say it was actually pretty shallow until I got to about my mid-20s. And then I, you know, John, you and I, we've talked about this a couple of times. I embarked upon this fairly ambitious uh, Bronze Age reading project where I read all things Bronze Age Superman from the dawn of the Bronze Age until the end of the Bronze Age. And one of the things I came out of that experience with was, you know, this idea of the Richard Donner protector guy. That's for the movies. Superman in the Bronze Age in the comics would beat your ass to the floor if he if he thought he needed to, okay? It doesn't matter if you've got superpowers or not. He would beat your ass, you know? And so, like, the idea of, you know, Superman crashing some terrorist who's holding a gun to to lois's head that he would crash crash that guy through a wall dude superman in the bronze age wouldn't think twice about that you know and maybe it's just that i like superman being kind of an ass kicker maybe it's just that you know i just read a lot of bronze age comics and that just kind of rolls off my shoulders maybe it's just that i've watched a lot of smallville where you know clark would punch even non-powered super people directly in the face and send them flying across the room and he would do it for fun. And that just doesn't really bother me. I mean, there's a specific point Clark makes about saying that he didn't kill anybody in the desert. I have to assume that is that that includes the head terrorist in charge of whatever little uh, hideout that, that, that little bunker was supposed to be. He didn't kill that guy either. Now, yeah, that guy's hating life right now. But he's still alive, you know. But again, people just lost their minds over that. I mean, what gives? And, and between you and me, um, Magnus, I think we have read the entire pre-crisis Superman. Because I, I have read the entire Golden Age and Silver Age and started the Bronze Age just this week. Oh, awesome. So um, my Superman read-through has gone through 30-plus years at this point and is moving forward. Um Similarly, I was surprised that they were doing it in the film, but I had no problems with it because that's what Superman does. He, you know, he will save people and he's not beyond doing some violence. Um, I think it's a product of the super extra careful child friendly story era of the Silver Age that puts a little bit of the lie to that. But even then, if it's not a normal human being, Superman is not above destroying threats, killing alien th- 
threats and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I mean, he will he will do whatever he needs to do, and occasionally he'll moan about it. And occasionally they'll say, I have a code against killing, and for this particular story, I can't kill somebody. But for the most part of the time, if, if, if something needs to be taken out in order to save the day, he'll do it. And he rarely does violence against normal people in the Silver Age, but, um, but that definitely was not a problem in the 40s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, whenever I first saw this film, and you don't really know just how far the lies go when you're first watching it. I thought his statement to Lois later, I didn't kill those guys, if that's what they're saying. I thought it was a direct reference to the man he pushed through the wall mm-hmm. instead of all of the men that they that they torched to make it look like he used heat vision all over them. Right. I was surprised by the, the, the uh, I guess, outrage of that moment as well, because when I saw it in the theaters and I saw it quite a quite a few a few times in the theaters, I I noticed that audiences would laugh at that moment. It was a comedic relief part of the the scene of the sequence. People thought that was funny. It was a cheer. And, yeah, it was a cheer. It was a Superman saved Lois moment. And and people really liked it. And I my interpretation of that scene is that, and this is what I assumed from the the get go was that Superman would have, you know, used his speed to grab the guy and then bust through the wall using his own body and thus not harming the the guy he grabbed. So I I, I didn't assume that Superman did anything to physically harm that man. And I, I do agree that the scene with uh, Lois later on when he says that he didn't kill anybody, that that's a factual, truthful statement. So I, I don't understand the the outrage about that at all. Well, and what I took from that was, yeah, it, it's a cool moment in, in the movie, you know, and it, it's fun. We've just had this big action uh, moment. And then here's the here's the where we get to put uh, a period on the end of that statement, you know. But the other thing about it was. Superman looks at Lois. Lois looks right back at Superman. They trade a look. Not a word is spoken, but she knows what to do. And she releases her grip on the guy's arm so that when Superman fly tackles that guy, she doesn't get taken along for the ride. That's how well they know each other. And it's been two years. They're not strangers to one another anymore. They've got a real relationship with each other. And... You know, I mean, it's happened a thousand friggin' times. And, you know, John, I am i would not be surprised if if you could echo this from your own standpoint, where I'm hanging around the house with uh, Stacy, and I guess I just make a certain facial expression or something like that, and she instantly knows what I'm thinking. And I never say a word, and she just says, you left your e-cig in, in, in your office. <laughs> and... That's how well she knows me, you know, and that's how well those two know each other and they don't have to say anything. And, you know, yeah, he he saves the day and we get this action sequence, but there's still something being said here about character, you know, and characters are developed at the same time bodies go crashing through walls. And I that just seems like a very Zack Snyder thing to do to me, you know. I had something I want to say about that part too, but Rebecca, what did you think about Lois in this scene? Oh, I love it. It's, it's Lois Lane out in the field going on a story 
getting herself into trouble just because she's doing something dangerous. And I do love the idea that she and Superman and she and Clark have been, (laughs) I I get the impression that they have been in these kinds of scrapes like this a lot in the last 18 months. And so they have developed a shorthand in, in order to uh, figure out what to do if she is in this kind of uh, trouble. But I love it. I love that she is fearless in order to get this interview, to go to this dangerous place with this dangerous guy. And she's open to hearing his thoughts and having a dialogue with him. And for me as a Lois fan, I, you know, you don't get to really see that a lot in the other previous movies. She might have a notepad or she might be talking to somebody, but this is, this is, for me, it's Lois Lane in her purest form as being an investigative reporter and someone who goes to the other parts of the world to get these stories. So I I think it's a a truly Lois Lane uh, sequence. Um, my perspective on Lois and Superman's history has shifted a little bit away from that concept that you were just saying, Rebecca. Just during this watching, I started to wonder if maybe actually this was maybe one of the first times that he's ever had to save her. We oh, certainly get the impression from Man of Steel that she is a very capable on her own. She's extremely smart, extremely clever, and extremely capable in dangerous situations. Um, that she makes a flag jacket line and, and man of steel <laughs> and there's just other stuff. So I think it does go to their relationship communication, but also just her intelligence of what would need to happen in that situation for him to take, for Superman to take the guy out. And that is, she can't be hanging on to him. So, um, and I, I, I don't know if I made any specific <clears throat> notes about why my perspective on Lois changed with this viewing, but, um, but yeah, I think that she's actually done pretty well for herself over the last 18 months. And this particular occasion, Superman came to save her. Hmm. Well, my uh, closing remarks on this is, uh, you know, it becomes a bigger issue later on, but uh, Lex's minion in this scene that we don't really realize yet is Lex's minion. His name is Anatoly Kanayazev. And Thank you. Cause I felt bad saying the Russian earlier. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, I actually had, I'm ashamed to say it, I hang, you know, I mean, seriously, guys, hanging my head in shame right now, right? I really am. But I had to see this movie probably two or three times before the name Anatoly Kanayazev actually resonated with me. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I think that's the KG Beast. And so I I wikied it. And sure enough, Anatoly Kanayazev, that's, that's the KG Beast. And it's... Like, I, I want to believe that this is going to go somewhere at some point. You know, I mean, yeah, if this is the most that happens with with uh, with KG Beast, then I, I guess it's fine. But it would be kind of nice. You know, maybe he's going to come back for uh, a Batman movie. You know, that could be kind of cool. And, uh, you know, they, they've never really exactly they never really. Cro- I mean, they do cross paths in this movie, but they're not really opposed or at least knowingly opposed to one another in this movie until that one scene and you that re- that realistically could set up a, a a rivalry between KG Beast and Batman and I I kind of dig that so anyway whatever you guys have to say about that I just want to throw that out there <clears throat> I remember looking at the connection at one point but I don't my Batman reading does not include any KG Beast stories. 
Yeah, I think it's possible if that's a story they want to tell. Because um, I, I, if I remember correctly, he does not. We we don't see him get put in prison or anything like that. So he he, I think he's still out there being a hitman for uh, some other bad guy, probably. So I think it's very possible that that doesn't could, he get. Uh, does he get exploded? Oh uh, my gosh, I'm an get, idiot. That's right. Well, That's he, right. He does get exploded by Batman. Um, I've seen this movie a thousand times and that left my brain. <laughs> he, uh, yes, he does get exploded by Batman when Batman goes to rescue Martha. Thank you for clearing that up. Hmm. Well, so if, if anything, it's a good nod. I mean, they, they pulled a character out of comics rather than just making up a random dude. Yeah, exactly. And yes, I, I would have been okay if it had been uh, nameless thug number four. I would have been fine with that, but I do kind of like the fact that it's, yes, it is in fact him. And so anyway, and you know, whatever, it's not like we saw a dead body or anything. Maybe he can come back. I don't know. So um, <laughs> he'd, he'd be very burned. He would have a lot of burns and scrapes. I would imagine. It worked for crossbones. Well, so, uh, I guess with, that was really the, uh, the most that I had to say about, uh, that that sequence and so um, John because my computer is kind of goofing up on me right now and my browser seems to have gone uh, I think the technical term is a berserk uh, do you happen to have the uh, Wikipedia page uh, pulled up right now I don't I do know what the next scene is oh okay please um, we then switch from there to the I don't know if you call it a Senate hearing. It has Senator Finch, and it is a hearing, but I don't know if you call it a Senate hearing. Whenever there, uh, whenever Kahina is describing how Superman destroyed her village and the government retaliated, right? Which it was not, definitely not on the first viewing, and maybe not even on subsequent viewings until the ultimate viewing. Clear to me that Kahina was deliberately lying there, right? Um. That she was totally make. I thought maybe I had misunderstood the scene, or maybe she had misunderstood what was going on, or whatever. Um, but yeah, so she is casting the blame on Superman, and this is where my note was that maybe it might be better if they had established more what Superman was like. Um, because what we see here is a very deliberate sequence of events that is all part of Lex's plan. Uh, he found the rock. Right. Once he found the rock in the Indian Ocean, which, by the way, how is that not like really polluted after the whole thing a year and a half ago? Anyways, um, Indian Ocean was beautiful there. But they, they found the rock, and then he decided to set his stuff into play in Nairobi, and that is what cast doubts on superman he uses that event he pays off kahina um to to testify a lie against superman and all of this stuff is him just building his legos to make you know make his thing happen which when you see it all with the knowledge of what's going on it's kind of masterful yeah, that's one of my favorite things about Lex's plan is that doesn't Finch later say that he gave uh, Lex gave Kahina a script for that hearing. And so now if you like go back and listen to what she says, it's very Lex Luthor because uh, she she mentions that um, that maybe uh, Superman wouldn't even uh, 
oh, you know, obey God, that kind of stuff. She, she mentions God and that's, that's Lex's whole thing is that he hates God. And so it's, it's interesting now to go listen back to what Kahina says, because it is Lex Luthor's script. Hmm. I like him. I don't really have anything uh, specifically insightful to add to that because honestly, it hadn't really gelled for me in that way, but I, I like that. <laughs> it sounds patronizing to say it that way. But. Okay, so um, not intended to be patronizing, but uh, uh, so I, I, as far as, uh, I guess, the next scene, um, and my computer is still screwing up on me here, but the we basically, I'm going off memory here, but what I think happens next is we, we basically get our first uh, glimpse of uh, Batman, in action mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the cops Gotham police they respond to a 911 uh, call and so they swoop into action and yeah they 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 rescue the I don't know this, these are supposed to be like victims of human trafficking I guess but I think so they, something like that yeah and what they end up doing is uh, interrupting the Batman as he's in the uh, in the process of uh, branding uh, uh, branding the perp and this is a kind of an interesting scene in that there's not really an explanation for Batman's method here he's sticking to the ceiling by means that are never elaborated upon he but it's just is- cool <laughs> yeah, and then he somehow crawls across the ceiling in a way that gravity doesn't seem to affect his cape and then he crawls up inside of a hole spider-man style and it's it's basically a kind of an interesting little tease for batman what's interesting is he doesn't put up a fight he basically escapes he doesn't try to fight back so that kind of tells you i guess where he's coming from with Gotham police that even if they're not necessarily always on his side, he's not going to take up arms against them. Even if they, they're shooting, they're, they're shooting at him. But what he will do is brand his, uh, his suspects literally brand them with a bat symbol on their chest. So John, uh, you're up. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Batman branding, uh, perps yeah that's not cool um um, it was definitely something unexpected uh i think it is helping to illustrate the rabbit hole of darkness that batman has been plummeting through for the last year and a half even alfred comments on it later is like new rules we 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 didn't do this before and batman's like we are now um, so again, Batman's not okay. I really liked the way this scene was built. I remember still the little jump my heart gave when I realized that the blurry shadow behind Officer Rucka was, um, Batman. Yeah. It's just like, you're watching the cop and then suddenly you realize that's Batman in the background. And it's just like, oh wow, that's so cool. And he, he, like you said, he, you know. I guess if you have a cape, you can fly, right? So he just, you know, gets out the building that way. Um, I thought that the uh, ultimate extension on this that has the cops sitting in the car 
um, watching the game, ignoring the call <laughs> was a great way to establish some corruption without like Gotham City is corrupt. Uh, the cops don't really care too much. There's bad stuff going on. There are people in danger, but they want to see who scores the touchdown first. Well, I like uh, that it was a football game between Metropolis and Gotham and a fight breaks out on the field. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to be said sometimes for the little things. Is that the, the, the entire movie in a microcosm is that game? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, pretty much, yeah. And then you've got this kind of uh, somewhat apathetic viewers that are watching the whole thing go down. They're kind of emotionally invested, but maybe not, you know? And so it, in some kind of ways, it's almost like a, it's a sporting event for them. And I thought, you know, this is, this is some really good symbolism. And I mean, I'm not big on football. I've never been a football fan. I don't like playing it. I don't like watching it. And this is heresy, considering I was born and bred in Texas. And so there you go. But it's just football is one of the all-time dull subjects for me. And so, wow, Zack Snyder made football kind of interesting for once. So <laughs> minor yeah, miracles. What I like about that football usage there is that it makes Gotham sort of the underdog. Metropolis wins the game at the at the I I don't I can't remember now if Metropolis was ahead uh, quite a bit and they just they got that last to zero yeah yeah if, if if yeah I I wanted I wanted to say that they were like killing Gotham but I couldn't remember exactly what the score was but they you know it's it's at the end of the game and Metropolis instead of like taking a knee they threw a touchdown <laughs> and I think that's what the the police officers are like come on you know you're already killing us and then you show off and score a touchdown and I think that sets up a lot of the the ways of how Metropolis is considered so much better than Gotham City that Gotham City are these these losers who uh, can't score any touchdowns and uh, and can't win the game and I do I do think that that says a lot about uh, Metropolis versus Gotham City as cities and also Superman uh, versus Batman and the fight that happens later on in the movie. And I actually really like this uh, introduction to Batman because it establishes him as a character that people fear. People are scared of this Batman. And, you know, like the Dark Knight trilogy, they do a little bit of it with, you know, Batman Begins and some of the, uh, you know, crime families are a little scared that he's going to come into their, you know, nightclubs and rough them up. But this one, like people are scared of him. And that's who Batman should be. He's a he's a superhero who operates under the the uh, the element of fear to scare criminals. And uh, what I, it, there's a there's a nice little bit of humor there in that scene where and I know people are going to push back on that because apparently Batman v Superman had zero humor and zero jokes. Uh, that's what I've been told anyway. Uh, but the internet's a, always right. The Internet is always 100 percent right. But there's a scene where there's a little moment in that scene where the women who have been freed, you know, the, the cell is open. Batman has freed them. They are free to leave, but they, they want to stay in there because they're scared of Batman. And so I think that that's really interesting that they, they recognize that Batman has saved them from whatever this, uh, this prison that they've been in, but they are also at the same time scared of Batman because he has turned a corner and started to be a little uh, uh, more cruel. And I love in, the, I love the, the lines there that the devil saved us, but he's still here. Yes, yes. 
So I like that. I like that we get to see a Batman who really does operate uh, with fear as one of the things in his tool belt, even though if he's now kind of gone over the line. And his utility belt is what I should say. I said tool belt. I mean, <laughs> well, we all know what you meant. And we'll pretend that's what you said, too. So. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so moving right along, we get this kind of neat little moment where Lois takes a bath. And, uh, you know, John, as as you said in the episode we did the first time about Batman v Superman, it does look like maybe somebody from the visual effects department added some extra suds and cloudiness to the water to hide Lois Lane's modesty a bit. And, Which is probably best because that's not the point of the movie, <laughs> or or of Lois Lane. I mean, it, it one of the th- one of the kind of weird things though about Lois Lane is that it's like everybody wants her to be you know beautiful, but it's almost like they don't want her to be. Well, I'm just going to say it. They don't want her to not have her clothes on, you know. And I mean, there's a weird dichotomy that takes place there where, yeah, we want her to be capable, we want her to be this, we want her to be that, but it's like. Well, women have, they take their clothes off too, you know? I mean, it's something that they that they do, you know? And I already feel like I'm digging a hole here a little bit, so I'm just going to pass this hot potato over to Rebecca. You're up. <laughs> well, I was about to say, as a woman, I don't mind that scene at all. Zero percent. I have no problem with that scene because um, they have her covered up for the most part. You don't really see anything. And I think it's a really nice emotional scene. I don't care if she's in the bath. That's not what I care about. I care about the fact that she and Clark are having this really emotional moment where they're talking about how their relationship affects the world. And that is a huge Lois Lane dilemma that exists through all kinds of media and all kinds of comic interpretations is how do you have that relationship and still be able to be Superman? And I think that's the essence of that scene. And what I think is great about it, especially the ultimate edition, is that Zack Snyder doesn't just make Amy Adams the eye candy in that scene. He full on has Henry Cavill take his shirt off, shows his back. And it's it's like I, I don't understand what people are so upset about if they if they have a problem with that scene. I mean, everybody is different. I, I fully uh, embrace that. Everybody has different opinions on that. But for me, I don't mind that at all to uh, to see Lois in the bathtub. And I like that in terms of uh, getting to see Lois and Clark happy. This is the scene like that they are like the most happy and uh, the happiest in the movie because towards the end of the movie, you know, Clark is questioning his ability as Superman and Lois is having to reassure him about his place in the world. And then, of course, at the end, he dies and she is broken up about it and uh, she has to continue her life without him. And so this bathtub scene is uh, their happiest moment. And I really like getting to see them uh, happy together. Right. I think it, it might also help to highlight that this is probably the most vulnerable that we see Lois throughout the film. Lois is not a vulnerable person. Right. Well, she is she does not present herself that way. She there are there's at least a couple times in this film when it is attention is called to the fact that Lois is, if I can put it the worst way possible, acting like a man. And if I could put it a better way, she is taking the full social liberties that men have always enjoyed and women haven't done so much um, of just asserting herself and being herself and to hell with you if you want to get in my way. Um, She 
does not let her guard down very much. And in this scene, you know, the ultimate edition has a scene just before where she pulls the bullet out of her journal and she's like, Oh my gosh, this is great. But then like holding this bullet and remembering what just happened, how close she came to dying. She puts herself in a warm bubble bath and, and cradles herself for a while, you know, and that's, that's the state that she's found whenever Clark comes in. Um, because she, if Superman hadn't shown up, she probably would have died. Yeah. And she's not okay with that. And again, this is one of those things I was thinking of. I feel like she hasn't experienced that. But for the grace of Superman, there go I. That's moment. a great point. Um, and so Clark comes in and, um, you know, and we get just like their cat. He's coming in. It's just it's just any day. Uh, he's he's uh, he thought he would cook. He brought home groceries. Um, I found it interesting that the the uh, mailbox said Lane on it. So Lois Lane has invited the alien to come stay at her place, <laughs> which, you know, makes sense. Um, or maybe if they're going to get married, Clark's going to take her name. I don't know. Um, so she's full of questions and full of, I don't know if doubts are the right word, but certainly she's had some conflicting thoughts and that leads to them reconnecting and reaffirming their partnership in this life. And I I thought it was a really, really great part of the film. Agreed. You know, it's kind of funny. I was supposed to use the Wikipedia entry here and, uh, haven't really done that. Uh, a whole lot, but to oh, I'm sorry. Quick question: Sure. Why isn't he wearing his super suit under his shirt? He takes his shirt off, and there's no <laughs> S under there. I mean, come on, Clark. What are you doing? <sighs> <Sorry. laughs> anyway, I honestly <laughs> never thought about that. But you know what? That is a very good point. Why isn't he? Where well, does he guess... keep it if he's not wearing it? That that is a good point that I hadn't thought of either. But maybe. Maybe, Maybe that's just... why it took him so long to, to, to rescue Lois at the beginning of the movie. He was actually <laughs> true, in Egypt. And, and so he's like, hey, I, I need to go back home. So he flew home, got got the suit, and then came back. That's what happened. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. It changes hair. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> All right. So to kind of move things along here, uh, basically, uh, so with the Wikipedia entry to finally get into the second sentence. After learning of Batman's form of justice, Clark Kent seeks to expose Batman via Daily Planet articles. Meanwhile, Wayne learns that Russian weapon trafficker Anatoly Kanayazev has been contacting LexCorp mogul Lex Luthor. Meanwhile, Luthor unsuccessfully tries to persuade Senator June Finch to allow him to import kryptonite retrieved from the bottom of the Indian Ocean following Zod's terraforming attempt, claiming he wants to maintain it as a deterrent, quote-unquote, against future Kryptonian invasions. And I think that's a good place to put it on pause. So a lot of stuff gets rolled out there. So one of the characters that kind of caught my eye starting from the trailers and then just going forward with with this movie is the character of June Finch. And based on nothing really except, I guess, my own speculation, I guess what I was expecting June Finch to be was uh, kind of a Luther minion inside of the government. 
somebody that was basically his man on the inside and maybe could do things for Lex legally that he wouldn't be able to do for himself, right? And that's really not who the character is at all. She's not necessarily totally on board with Superman. She's definitely not on board with Lex Luthor. And I kind of, I mean, she has a small part in the movie, and, and I grant that. But, I, you know, what little, and of course now the actress's name is, is uh, escaping me, but... Oh, uh, Holly, Holly Hunter. Hunter. Yeah, Holly Hunter, right. She really does make the most of very little in this movie, at least as far as screen time is concerned. Because, like, altogether, she's only on screen for, like, 10 or 15 minutes. And I think she's only really got, like, three or four or five scenes. But she really does do a lot with them, you know? So I just, I, I kind of like it. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah, I like Senator Finch as as a character. I, I personally think that she is named, nobody has said this, but this is my, I guess, conjecture. I think she's named Finch after Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird mm-hmm. and uh, and and the legal character uh, in that. But I, and, and also that's Clark Kent's favorite book, if I remember correctly, or favorite movie, baby. Maybe it might be his favorite movie. Um, but I, I like her as a character. There's a lot of stuff like in her office. Office. Like you can tell that she is from Kentucky. Uh, she's got degrees uh, and and all the things that are happening in her office reflect about her character. Even if like they don't say a lot about her character, you get to see some things. And I really like that she stands toe to toe with Lex Luthor. Like, like you said, like she's not full on board with Superman or Lex. She's she's kind of in the center trying to hear everybody out. And she has that wonderful piece of dialogue. I think she says, you know, good is a conversation. And, uh, you know, she asks uh, who determines what's good. And I personally, for me, <laughs> I have a lot of dis- distrust about certain people in the government. You know, I, it's very hard for me to believe that they are acting in our best interest instead of their own interests. So it was really refreshing to see someone in Batman v Superman who was a government official, who was a politician, who did genuinely seem to be acting on the interest of the American people and who wanted to actually hear people out and get to the truth. And um, I, I think that, you know, it's unfortunate for her that Lex does indeed get the better of her, but she wants to expose him. And I, I, I really uh, applaud that character for wanting to get the truth out there. Yeah. Right. Okay. She introduces one of the biggest themes of this film, and that is the nature of good versus evil and what is good and what does it take to do good? And is there a cost to doing good? That is a question that is wrestled with and brought up multiple times going forward. Um, and yeah, I think she's not on screen a lot, but she is the most memorable person and supporting cast after all of the comic book names that we were looking forward to when we got there. Um, and you know, she, she comes in and she sees Lex Luthor and at first, everything seems so pleasant. Um, and it's only when she comes back later and denies his import license and Lex Luthor immediately shifts. Yeah. Like you can see it on his face. And she begins to see just how nasty he really is that she is opposed to him. And then Kahina's words about him later, and I, we're sort of condensing all of her plot into a, a moment here, and I apologize, but... Um, 
you know, that journey she goes on towards Lex Luthor is is really she plays it really well. It's really interesting. And then sadly, she loses that battle. Right. Well, the. uh, We may be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but the next uh, the next sentence in the in the summary, the synopsis here says, can I. Oh, maybe that's important, but we we've skipped over like uh, the first Batman Alfred scene, and um, and some other stuff with that uh, oh, sure. Kryptonite scene that I was, I was going to mention. But I don't know because when you were saying earlier that one of the people who struck you in the trailers, and then I thought you were going to mention Alfred mm-hmm. because he had such a big prominent role in the trailers, and he was so memorable in this film. He is he is Mister Sassy. <laughs> and he, I love him in this movie. I think he is fantastic. He's one of the uh, more memorable parts. And um, whenever we see Batman for the first time as um, as a person, not as a shadow on the wall, um, it's Alfred tearing him up <laughs> one side and down the other. And it's I, I thought it was a great scene. Yeah, well, uh, he is he is a little sassy in the movie, but one of his I think maybe his very first scene. Uh, with Bruce in the Batcave, uh, Bruce makes a statement to the effect of, well, we've always been criminals, and this isn't anything new. Nothing has changed. And then Alfred, he gets this really dark look on his face, and even his, his voice takes on a kind of a different tone, and he says, oh, yes, it has. Everything mm-hmm. has changed. And I mean, number one, you know, he of all people would know. Uh, you know, I mean... As the viewers, we we don't necessarily know that. For all we know, this is everything we've seen Batman do, everything we've heard about. This could just, maybe that's just business as usual for this particular incarnation of, of Batman. And so we've got Alfred here to say, no, you've changed. You know, whatever it was that you set out to be, you are not that thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And he says it with this. He he doesn't go over the top with it because you know Jeremy Irons. He always knows where the line is, but it it was one of those moments in the trailer that it really sold me on. Well, number one, Jeremy Irons as Alfred. I mean, I don't think anybody in the room had a hard time predicting that one. You know, it's kind of like the Henry Cavill effect, where you don't need to see the movie to know that it's going to turn out good, at least for his participation. But, you know, everything else in the movie, yeah, you know, you, you, you get a little bit of uh, back talk, a little bit of sass and all of that. But at least to start with, it, it's a very somber moment, you know, and it's played. I, I, I could watch that scene a hundred times. It's it's that good. <sighs> yeah, he he perfectly paints that picture that Batman's not OK. And he says, you know, he points to, you know, God's coming down from the sky he also makes a comment of innocence lost, which in the context of the story of the film is probably the way it enterprises people. Mm-hmm. But also we know in this film that Robin has died. Yes. And it, and so he could also be, I think that's also a, an element in Batman going down the hole. Um, and, you know, possibly chronologically speaking, Robin died within the last 18 months. And so you have Superman destroying half you know uh, superman and zod rather their battle destroying so much of metropolis of course bruce blames on superman that starts things off and jason or whichever robin gets killed by joker that sends things down so 
he's he's gone down this path. Yes. Um, and just on a side note, when we see him here, we're, he's in the middle of this white Portuguese investigation that we know nothing about, mm-hmm. except that now that we you know have seen the film, we know what it is. We come into the middle of his investigation, this story that was in turn also triggered by the founding of the kryptonite and is therefore part of Lex Luthor's machination. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I like that. It's actually, it's a very clever way, I think, to do it, you know? And um, it's just, I guess any movie is a jigsaw puzzle, you know? When you, when you talk about how characters interact with the plot and what effect the plot has on the characters and what effect they have on each other. And this really is a very well constructed movie, I think, and more in the in the the ultimate cut. I mean, I was never one of those people who would talk down and run down the theatrical version, but that one really was a compromise. The ultimate the ultimate version of the movie is, I think, clearly the the, the better one, if you ask me. So. Yeah, I, I agree. I fell in love with the theatrical cut, but the ultimate edition, the extended cut, is the superior, more complete movie. And I, I like that scene with Alfred, too, because he talks about I think that's the scene where he talks about the feeling of powerlessness mm. with Bruce. And that is such a great way to describe Bruce's entire arc in the movie is that he's upset with Superman because he feels powerless, because Superman is so uh, more powered than he is, that he has more power, that he has more strengths that he could if, if he went crazy and went, uh, and, and turned to, I I guess the dark side became evil. He could burn the whole place down if he wanted to. And so that, that feeling of powerlessness is a huge thing for Bruce. And I would even argue for Lex Luthor and how they're closely paralleled. So I would agree that it's also a very well constructed movie. I had the exact same thought because one of the points I was going to make later is that everything Lex Luthor fears to be in Superman, he causes to happen with Doomsday and Darkseid. Mm. And everything that Batman fears to be in Superman, he is in the process of becoming. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> well, and in relation to that, the, the next the next uh, sentence in the, the Wikipedia synopsis says, Lex Luthor instead makes all... Uh, alternative plans with Finch's subordinate and gains access to Zod's body and the Kryptonian scout ship. Now, the reason that particular element of the plot really plays for me is, you know, one of the one of the major criticisms that people had of Man of Steel was that Superman killed Zod. Now, I'm one of those people who thinks that, yeah, it's nice that Superman has a moral ideal that he tries to aspire to where he never uses his powers to take life. And, you know, instead he uses his powers to serve and to protect and all that fun stuff. And that's great. You know, but that's an ideal. You know, the fact of the matter is there's nobody out there who can arrest Brainiac or who can arrest Mongol or who can arrest Darkseid or whoever. You know, I mean, if if uh, the Guardians are capable of doing it, they have yet to demonstrate their ability to do it. So pretty much if Earth is going to be protected, it may come down to it in the end that Superman has to use lethal force, you know. And so, no, he's not necessarily going to do that for somebody who steals a car because we have a criminal justice system that's perfectly capable of, of dealing with car thieves 
or kidnappers or murderers or whoever. You know, we we can deal with that as a human race. But we don't really have a way of dealing with somebody like Zod. And why that's so hard for people to understand, I don't know. But nevertheless, that was still a point of contention for a lot of people. And for those of for those in the audience who lost their minds over it, couldn't stand the fact that Superman killed Zod back in Man of Steel, well, here's where his decision comes back to haunt him. You know, because basically in killing Zod, Superman gave to Lex Luthor on a silver platter the means of his own undoing. You know, if Superman had found some other way of dealing with Zod, something that didn't kill him, maybe something that could have sent him to the Phantom Zone or just whatever, then Lex would never never have been able to genetically engineer Doomsday and Superman would still be alive. So Superman's own decisions come back to haunt him in this. And so if for no other reason than Superman has to recognize that actions have consequences, that the lives I save today may, you know what, that may be great, but this could lead to other issues later on down the road that nobody can deal with. And it's a good lesson for him to learn. I mean, I realize I just went from one part of this synopsis to another part, but it all, it to me, it's kind of all of a piece. And it it needs to be said, at least up front, I think, that Lex didn't do anything to Superman in this movie vis-a-vis Doomsday that Superman himself didn't intentionally or unintentionally enable. And I kind of like that, you know? So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, and I think that is explored in the movie itself that, you know, it brings to mind the scene where Clark is watching the news and just listening to people and uh, who are talking about Superman and the consequences that his actions have. And I think he really internalizes that and he's trying to figure that out. So I think that's a really great point that even with the, the Zod thing that he he did what he did to save the world, but then it kind of came back to haunt him. I mean, li- it literally came back to kill him at the end of the movie. And I, I think that's a great point that that I think Clark and, and, and Superman, uh, you know, those two aspects of his life that he's trying to figure out how to deal with them. Yeah, that brings up um, one of the big questions of the film, uh, the good versus evil question, because those those reports you're talking about where he's watching the TV there asking, you know, how does Superman decide which lives to save, which ones count and which ones don't. And you can see that Clark is not comfortable with that question. He's, he's having to wrestle with that. And um, I'm going to tangent here just, just for a second, because one of the things with man of steel uh, that I took away from it is that the story very much emphasizes the first word of that phrase. Mm-hmm. That this is a man, this is a human being, this is a dude who grew up in Kansas, who also happens to have powers, and now he's trying to figure out how that works and what that's all about. Um, so much of what Superman does in stories, he does because he's Superman. That's the reason. But in these films, that's an invalid answer because Clark is trying to figure out what it means to be Superman. What does it mean to be this savior of people? How do I do this? How do I do it the best way? And what does it cost when I act one place, but don't act another place? He went and saved Lois, and now the world has turned against him. 
he he stopped terrorists in Africa that were too that, that were you know killing people in Africa, and now the world has turned against him. He doesn't under he does, he's he's trying to find the questions or trying to find the answers to the questions on how to be a superhero. Um, and ultimately, I think it's the conversation with Jonathan on the mountain that helps him really find some sort of some sort of balance with that. We can come back to that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that that he is forming still because all his life, all, you know, or, or his career, his year and a half career, he's just been saving people and doing good, and now he's getting called on the carpet for it, and um, and well, it's it's disturbing for him. Well, one of the things I kind of like, and maybe I'm just bending spoons here a little bit too much, I don't know, but I kind of like the fact that what this movie seems to imply, and certainly, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about something that's not Man of Steel or not Dawn of Justice, but what the future seems to, where things seem to be going in future movies is maybe a kinder, gentler Batman and possibly a, a bit more of a refined Superman. But we see the seeds of that here where, you know, yeah, Batman's out there, he's fighting crime, but he's going a little too far with it at times. And, you know, honestly, I don't really mind that as much just as a fan. I mean, to me, I don't really see what moral difference there is between beating the snot out of somebody using karate kicks and batterings versus just taking them out altogether you know i mean i don't see how beating somebody half to death is somehow better than beating them to death all the way you know they're both pretty bad you know i don't really see how one is superior to the other nevertheless it does seem like that's going to be where things go and for superman's influence maybe you know that maybe batman realizes that there do need there there does need to be some kind of a limit here and i think for superman's participation one of the things that we never saw happen in Man of Steel, and we definitely never see happen in Batman v Superman, not really, is Superman fighting crime. I mean, yeah, he'll do these amazing rescues, you know, uh, uh, carrying that huge oil tanker through the Arctic ice. He uh, catches a rocket. <clears throat> you know, he does all of this crazy stuff, but we don't really see him, you know, chasing down purse snatchers and stuff like that. And so maybe the lesson that Superman takes from this is that I should content myself perhaps with sticking with Metropolis and cleaning things up there, taking the plank out of my own eye before uh, worrying about a speck of dust in somebody else's, you know? And I kind of like the fact that Superman and Batman are kind of having kind of a tempering influence on each other and their modes of behavior going forward neither man is the same for having met the other now. And I kind of like that. Yeah. I like I, that they would teach each other something. I hadn't thought about the fact that Superman really never fights crime in this, in this version of the story. Um, he stops major threats. He, um, Bruce belittlingly mentions him catching kittens out of trees, but that may have just been a euphemism for, you know, every little thing Superman does. Y'all write, y'all say, you know, all these great things about him. So maybe Superman isn't really doing like little salvations. Maybe he's really just saving, you know, exploding rockets, saving people from those and every, you know, the stuff that's really big. And so maybe that's part of why whenever he does go after a person, 
whenever he does go and save Lois from uh, from the general or whoever it was, maybe that's something of a nature that he hasn't really done before. Hmm. I don't know that I would have thought to connect the dots quite like that, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and Magnus, I think you have a really good point about him figuring out, should I just stay in Metropolis or should I be a hero for the world? Because, uh, you know, he does cross a, a line going to save Lois in Africa. And that's kind of what prompts everything because it, it does seem to be very politically charged. So maybe in the future, he will just be, you know, Metropolis's savior and, and operate out of that city, uh, which he does in a lot of different, itera- different iterations. So I, I do like the point that both of you have kind of been making is that he's still, and this is what I like about the way that the DCEU is telling stories is that it's a character progression. He's still figuring out how to be Superman. And so I think eventually we'll, we'll get to see probably, I hope, uh, get to see a Superman who is kind of fully formed and who has maybe, maybe not figured out everything, but maybe he's gotten to a point where he's comfortable doing what he's doing and he's, he's kind of figured out the basics of how to be a superhero. So I, I like getting to see that progression. Me too. Especially since it's never really been done in live action, big screen cinema. This is new territory, you know? And, you know, I, I, I enjoy Superman, the movie. I think that's, uh, it, it's rightfully regarded as a watershed moment in superhero cinema. It's great, and I understand all the, the love and affection that people have for it, but it, it in a weird kind of way, it sort of cheated us a little bit out of Superman, or it kind of cheated us out of Clark becoming Superman. You know, I mean, he basically went to the brainwashing factory for 12 years, and he never had to ask himself, the big questions, you know, who am I and what should I do? Jarrell basically provided him with all those answers. Yeah. And perhaps a little bit of social engineering to go with it. Whereas what we see here is Jarrell provided him with answers about where he comes from and who he is as a person, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't give him necessarily, uh, a step-by-step instruction manual on what to do and how to be. He's got to work that, that stuff out for himself. And I don't know. I mean, for the story that Richard Donner wanted to tell, that approach worked great. But just speaking as a fan, I like watching the character kind of work it out for himself. You know, it's the same reason that I like that Superboy TV show so much, because you can kind of infer that this is, like almost like an alternate universe Donner Superman. This is Mm -hmm. the guy that was actually able to save Jonathan Kent from the heart attack. And so maybe that gave him a false sense of his own, his own power and his own capabilities. And what he has to learn over the course of the, of the show is number one guy, you don't have all the answers. And number two, you've, you've got to, there's a lot of introspection and uh, self-examination that you need to undergo before you can achieve whatever destiny lay lay in store for you. And that's never really explicit in the show, but that's always just something that I kind of took from it anyway. And I like that about it. And we're getting, we're getting a, a kind of, we got a taste of it with the Superboy TV show and we're getting a plate full of it here. And I just, I eat it up. It's great. I almost kind of wish it never becomes simple. Um, yeah. Not that things are morally gray, but just that the world is a complex place. 
Yes. And um, I, I, I like that they're presenting situations where there's no single right answer, or there are multiple right answers that all have a certain amount of cost or wrongness to them, and. It makes for it makes for more difficult storytelling and more difficult story absorption, but um, but yeah, um, at the risk of moving us on before we're ready to, sure. um, I was gonna ask, um, and, and and Magnus first only because I've heard a lot of his thoughts on this character, but which Luthor do you like more, this one or Rosenbaum? Honestly, uh, it it really do- all roads kind of go back to Rosenbaum for me. Um, what I like about this this version of Flex is that um, it seems very birthright to me. You know, not just the hair. I mean, everybody comes back to the hair. It's not just the hair. But the way that he speaks and just the kind of uh, conniving conspiracies and uh, sneakiness that he's got. Rosenbaum in Smallville would... He wouldn't be... He wouldn't use this much subterfuge, you know? And he wouldn't necessarily be this vindictive. You know, what we see here is a, is a Lex Luthor that's kind of consumed by his own hate. And, in, in fact, come to that, sort of a completely irrational hate, but hate nevertheless. And it just seems so sadistic, so sociopathic. It's, to me, that's everything that Lex Luthor was in Birthright. And, you know, I mean, I think you can draw a lot of straight lines between the DCEU Superman universe and John Byrne's Man of Steel. You can draw just as many, if not more, straight lines to Birthright. I'm a bad Superman fan. I have not read Birthright. No, that's oh, really? interesting. Oh, it, it's it, it's good. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. You know, it came out before I got back into comics, mm-hmm. and I just haven't gone back to that era yet and, and done any concentrated reading. Well, uh, at the risk of prejudicing you, what I find is um, when I reread Birthright now, what works for me is if I just think of this as a completely unique Superman, it's its own thing, it doesn't really fit in anywhere, it's just Mark Wade just on a lark telling a Superman origin story the way he's always wanted to do it. Like Earth One. Yeah, sure. And the... Where I think a lot of people get tripped up with it is... You know, and this is not not a slam on anybody. It's just this is, if anything, the machinations of DC Comics. But, you know, Birthright was... There, there came a point when it kind of supplanted Man of Steel as Superman's origin. And I don't think people minded Birthright the story. I think they had problems for, from a continuity standpoint, if nothing else. Birthright as Superman's new origin. And that, I think, is where a lot of the opposition comes from. But if you just read it on its own merits, Rise or Fall, I think you're, I think you're going to get into it. I think it's going to be pretty good. Mark Wade usually makes me happy, so I'm looking forward to eventually getting there. Well, look, one of the things I've never really wanted to do with my podcast was fawn too much over any single comic book creator. But what I can what I can say, and John, I think you may know where I'm coming from here. 
I can say, hand on heart, I have never once read a comic book written by Mark Wade and thought, man, that's a real piece of shit. <laughs> it's it's just never happened, you know. I mean, I'm sure the guy has had clunkers. I mean, it, you can't be in the industry as long as he has without kicking out a couple of clunkers. But I've never found it. So whatever you think of that. That's how I feel about Zack Snyder movies. By the way. Awesome. Okay, so I think this is a pretty convenient spot for me to put a pin in the discussion, at least for right now. Come back tomorrow for the next chapter in the Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Retrospective. See you then. My name is Rebecca Johnson, and if you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at DerbyKid, that's D-E-R-B-Y-K-I-D. I have some videos on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash duckmilkprod, that's D-U-C-K-M-I-L-K-P-R-O-D, and you can see some Batman v Superman videos there if you would like. And I'm also one of the co-hosts of a podcast called Supergirl Radio, where we talk about the CW Supergirl TV series and all things Car at Zorel. So if you like Supergirl, uh, check us out at supergirlradio.com. This is John Wilson, just inviting you to come follow me over on the Twitters at John Reads Comics. No H in John or Reads or Comics because none of those words have H's in them. And um, I tweet often about comics. I used to do a lot of podcasts. Those are pretty much on hold right now. I haven't published anything since some family business a while back. So, but do come geek out with me about comics on Twitter. That'd be great.